Hello everybody, my name is TJ, and this is my podcast, TJ Sweetwater's Truth, where I speak my truth, what I see, what I research, what I notice, what I observe, and people, places, and things, and hopefully, it will start letting people look at their truth and really question it outside of the box so I hope you enjoy it and hopefully people will start waking up welcome everybody it's TJ Sweetwater And this is a podcast where we talk about truth. So all you truth seekers and freedom fighters and light workers and outcasts, the first episode here is going to be about how I found everything. That one needs to see what's going on. The first thing one needs to do is listen to music. Music tells the times of the environment. So, I'll give you a little glimpse of the environment. My eyes are open, I can't get caught in these little traps. And I don't need to burn sage because that's witchcraft. We need to stop being mad at the person. It's not the flesh, it's the spirit, we need discernment It's scary to have it all figured out and you still don't know what's coming If I say Jesus is coming, then people think it's funny But all these kids believe in tooth fairies and mummies I thought Easter was about Jesus, they replaced him with a bunny Distractions give us more faith in Santa Claus than our savior How come the letters in Santa also spell Satan? If scary movies are good, then why do we fear it? Why do these stores like to call alcohol spirits? Help me understand it the world been looking shady, I just need some answers I'm seeing men turn into ladies, everything is backwards The world has been deceiving us with these distractions How did this happen? Look at this world that we live in, somebody casting spells When we celebrate Mardi Gras, we just mask ourselves. Think I'm saying too much, am I getting past myself? Is Christmas really about Christ? Now let's just ask ourselves. Okay God, if they not shook yet, here's the earthquake Where in the Bible does it say what's Jesus' birthday? Social media caused a lot of my worst days Can't forget the past if we keep throwing back on Thursdays Everyone thinking it's funny, am I the only one who don't find it amusing? Everybody be talking about purpose but don't even know what they supposed to be doing Don't even know if they believe in Jesus, everyone picking and choosing I can see all of their fame and all of their money but really they losing But they go just say I'm hating, they think they winning Lukewarm Christians in their feelings cause they sinning The Holy Spirit's conviction got them offended So let me go ahead and end it cause they won't get it can't win every argument trying to twist facts Manipulation's a form of witchcraft I had to let go of pride cause I gotta be humble 
because he who exalts himself will be humble. I'm feeling this. Hold on, I'm about to go back in because I got a lot more to say. <laughs> They're not ready for this. So actually, let me pray on that. Cut it off. So that sounds like the environment to me when I look around. But next is a video I played March 28th, 2020. Before anybody ever even heard the word vaccine. I recorded it. I posted it. And it was censored. I've known all the way back further about censorship. But I find it kind of ironic that everything I said March 28th, 2020 has literally come to life. And then after that, I'll let you listen to everything that I found I searched for to make sure what I'm saying was actually happening. Just figured I'd uh, point this out Saturday, March 28th, 2020 at 9.16 p.m. Once the herd accepts mandatory forcible vaccination it's game over they will accept anything forcible blood and organ donation from for the greater good we can genetically modify children sterilize them for the greater good control sheep minds and you control the herd vaccine makers stand to make billions and many of you in this room today are investors it's a big win-win well then out of the herd and the herd pays us for providing extermination services. Now, what's for lunch? Henry Kissinger in the speech to the World Health Organization Council on Eugenics, February 25th, 2009. Posted that Saturday, March 28th, 2020, 9.16 p.m. And where are we today, people? Where are we today Jocko Podcast number 291 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Your responsibilities may involve the command of more traditional forces, but in less traditional roles. Men risking their lives not as combatants, but as instructors or advisors, or as symbols of our nation's commitments. The fact that the United States is not directly at war in these areas in no way diminishes the skill and the courage that will be required, the service to our country which is rendered, or the pain of the casualties 
which are suffered. To cite one final example of the range of responsibilities that will fall upon you, you may hold a position of command with our special forces, forces which are too unconventional to be called conventional, forces which are growing in number and importance and significance, for we now know that it is wholly misleading to call this the nuclear age, or to say that our security rests only on the doctrine of massive retaliation. Korea has not been the only battleground since the end of the Second World War. Men have fought and died in Malaya, Greece, the Philippines, Algeria, and Cuba, and Cyprus, and almost continuously on the Indo-Chinese Peninsula. No nuclear weapons have been fired. No massive nuclear retaliation has been considered appropriate. This is another type of war. New in its intensity, ancient in its origin. War by guerrillas, subversives, insurgents, assassins. War by ambush instead of by combat. By infiltration instead of aggression. Seeking victory by eroding and exhausting the enemy instead of engaging him. It is a form of warfare uniquely adapted to what we, to what has strangely been called wars of liberation to undermine the efforts of new and poor countries to maintain the freedom that they have finally achieved. It preys on economic unrest and ethnic conflicts. It requires in those situations where we must counter it. And these are the kinds of challenges that will be before us in the next decade if freedom is to be saved. A whole new kind of strategy, a wholly different kind of force and therefore a new and wholly different kind of military training. And that right there was an excerpt from a speech by John F. Kennedy to the 1962 graduating class of West Point, the United States Military Academy. And that same year, he also released a message to the U.S. Army. And that message read, to the United States Army. Another military dimension, guerrilla warfare, has necessarily been added to the American profession of arms. The literal translation of guerrilla warfare, a little war, is hardly applicable to this ancient, but at the same time, modern threat. I note that the Army has several terms which describe the various facets of the current struggle, wars of subversion, covert aggression, and in broad professional terms, special warfare or unconventional warfare. By whatever name, this militant challenge to freedom calls for an improvement and enlargement of our own development of techniques and tactics, communications and logistics to meet this threat. The mission of our armed forces, and especially the Army today, is to master these skills and techniques and to be able to help those who have the will to help themselves. Pure military skill is not enough. A full spectrum of military, paramilitary, and civil action must be blended to produce success. Civil action. The enemy uses economic and political warfare, propaganda, and naked military aggression in an endless combination to oppose a free choice of government and suppress the rights of the individual 
by terror, by subversion, and by force of arms. To win in this struggle, our officers and men must understand and combine, and combine the political, economic, and civil actions with skilled military efforts in the execution of this mission. The Green Beret is again becoming a symbol of excellence, a badge of courage, a mark of distinction in the fight for freedom. I know the United States Army will live up to its reputation for imagination, resourcefulness, and spirit as we meet this challenge. Signed, John F. Kennedy. So, expect you to point Remarks of the President to the American Newspaper Publishers Association, Waldorf Astoria Hotel, New York City, April 27, 1961. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate very much your generous invitation to be here tonight. You bear heavy responsibilities these days, and the article I read uh, some time ago reminded me of how particularly heavily the burdens of present-day events bear upon your profession. You may remember that in 1851, New York Herald Tribune, under the sponsorship and publishing of Horace Greeley, employed as its London correspondent an obscure journalist by the name of Karl Marx. We are told that foreign correspondent Marx, stone broke, and with a family ill and undernourished, constantly appealed to Greeley and managing editor Charles Dana for an increase in his munificent salary of $5 per installment, a salary which he and Engels ungratefully labeled as the lousiest petty bourgeois cheating. But when all his financial appeals were refused, Marx looked around for other means of livelihood and fame, eventually terminating his relationship with the Tribune and devoting his talents full-time to the cause that would bequeath to the world the seeds of Leninism, Stalinism, Revolution, and the Cold War. If only this capitalistic New York newspaper had had treated him more kindly. If only Marx had remained a foreign correspondent, history might have been different. And I... I hope all publishers will bear this lesson in mind. The next time they receive a poverty-stricken appeal from a small increase in the expense account, an obscure newspaper man. I have uh, selected as the title of my remarks tonight, The President and the Press. Some may suggest that this would be more naturally worded, The President versus the Press, but those are not my sentiments tonight. It is true, however, that when a well-known diplomat from another country 
demanded recently that our State Department repudiate certain newspaper attacks on his colleague, it was unnecessary for us to reply that this administration was not responsible for the press, for the press had already made it clear that it was not responsible for this administration. Nevertheless, my purpose here tonight is not to deliver the usual assault on the so-called one-party press. On the contrary, in recent months, I have rarely heard any complaints about political bias in the press, except from a few Republicans. Nor is it my purpose tonight to discuss or defend the televising of presidential press conferences. I think it is highly beneficial to have some 20 million Americans regularly sit in on these conferences to observe, if I may say so, the incisive, the intelligent, and the courteous qualities displayed by your Washington correspondents. Nor, finally, are these remarks intended to examine the proper degree of privacy which the press should allow to any president and his family. If, in the last few months, your White House reporters and photographers have been, in, have been attending church services with regularity, that has surely done them no harm. On the other hand, I realize that your staff and wire service photographers may be complaining they do not enjoy the same green privileges, the local golf courses, which they once did. It is true that my predecessor did not object, as I do, to pictures of one's golfing skill in action. But neither, on the other hand, did he ever be a Secret Service man. My uh, topic tonight is a more sober one, of concern to publishers as well as editors. I want to talk about our common responsibilities in the face of a common danger. The events of recent weeks may have helped to illuminate that challenge for some, but the dimensions of its threat have loomed large on the horizon for many years. Whatever our hopes may be for the future, for reducing this threat or living with it, there is no escaping either the gravity or the totality of its challenge to our survival and to our security a challenge that confronts us in unaccustomed ways in every sphere of human activity. This deadly challenge imposes upon our society two requirements of direct concern, both to the press and to the president. Two requirements that may seem almost contradictory in tone, but which must be reconciled and fulfilled if we are to meet this national peril. I refer first to the need for far greater public information, and second, to the need for far greater official secrecy. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society, and we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment 
of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. But I do ask, but I do ask every publisher, every editor, and every newsman in the nation to re-examine his own standards and to recognize the nature of our country's peril. In time of war, the government and the press have customarily joined in an effort based largely on self-discipline to prevent unauthorized disclosures to the enemy. In times of clear and present danger, the courts have held that even the privileged rights of the First Amendment must yield to the public's need for national security. Today, no war has been declared. And however fierce the struggle may be, it may never be declared in the traditional fashion. Our way of life is under attack. Under attack. Those who make themselves our enemy are advancing around the globe. Advancing around the globe. The survival of our friends is in danger. 1961. And yet no war has been declared. No war. No borders have been crossed by marching troops. No borders crossed. No missiles have been fired. No guns fired. If the press is awaiting a declaration of war, before it imposes the self-discipline of combat conditions, then I can only say that no war ever posed a greater threat to no our security. No war ever posed a greater threat. If you are threat. awaiting a finding of clear 1961. and present danger, then I can only say that the danger has never been more clear and its presence has never been more imminent. No more imminent. It requires a change in outlook, a change in tactics, a change in missions by the government, by the people, by every businessman or labor leader, and by every newspaper. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means, covet means. for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration, instead of invasion, on subversion, instead of elections, on intimidation, instead, instead of, of free, free choice. choice, on guerrillas by night, instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, diplomatic. intelligence, economic, Scientific. scientific and political operations there you go its preparations are concealed not, not published. published its mistakes are buried not, not headlined denied. its dissenters are silenced not, not praised. praised no expenditure is questioned no rumor is printed no secret is revealed 
It conducts the Cold War in short, with a wartime discipline no democracy would ever hope or wish to match. Nevertheless, every democracy recognizes the necessary restraints of national security. And the question remains whether those restraints need to be more strictly observed if we are to oppose this kind of attack as well as outright invasion. Invasion. For the facts of the matter are that this nation's foes have openly boasted of acquiring through our newspapers information they would otherwise hire agents to acquire through theft, bribery, or espionage. The details of this nation's covered preparations to counter the enemy's covered operations have been available to every newspaper reader, friend and foe alike, that the size, the strength, the location, and the nature of our forces and weapons, and our plans and strategy for their use, have all been pinpointed in the press and other news media to a degree sufficient to satisfy any foreign power, and that in at least one case, the publication of details concerning a secret mechanism whereby satellites were followed required its alteration at the expense of considerable time and money. The newspapers which printed these stories were loyal, patriotic, responsible, and well-meaning. Had we been engaged in open warfare, they undoubtedly would not have published such items. But in the absence of open warfare, they recognized only the tests of journalism and not the tests of national security. And my question tonight is whether additional tests should not now be adopted. That question is for you alone to answer. No public official should answer it for you. No governmental plan should impose its restraints against your will. But I would be failing in my duty to the nation in considering all of the responsibilities that we now bear and all of the means at hand to meet those responsibilities if I did not commend this problem to your attention and urge its thoughtful consideration. On many earlier occasions I have said, and your newspapers have constantly said, that these are times that appeal to every citizen's sense of sacrifice and self-discipline. They call out to every citizen to weigh his rights and comforts against his obligations to the common good. I cannot now believe that those citizens who serve in the newspaper business consider themselves exempt from that appeal. I have no intention of establishing a new office of war information to govern the flow of news. I am not suggesting any new forms of censorship or new types of security classifications. I have no easy answer to the dilemma that I have posed and would not seek to impose it if I had one. But I am asking the members of the newspaper profession and the industry in this country to re-examine their own responsibilities, to consider the degree and the nature of the present danger, and to heed the duty of self-restraint which that danger imposes upon us all. Every newspaper now asks itself, with respect to every story, is it news? All I suggest is that you add the question, is it in the interest of national security? And I hope that every group in America, unions and businessmen and public officials at every level, will ask the same question of their endeavors and subject their actions to this same exacting test. And should the press of America 
consider and recommend the voluntary assumption of specific new steps or machinery, I can assure you that we will cooperate wholeheartedly with those recommendations. Perhaps there will be no recommendations. Perhaps there is no answer to the dilemma faced by a free and open society in a cold and secret war. In times of peace, any discussion of this subject and any action that results are both painful and without precedent. But this is a time of peace and peril, which knows no precedent in history. It is the unprecedented nature of this challenge that also gives rise to your second obligation, an obligation which I share. And that is our obligation to inform and alert the American people. Inform and alert. To make certain that they possess all the facts that they need. Like these ones. Understand them as well. How come they're not the showing perils, you? The prospects, the purposes of our program, and the choices that we face. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program. For from that scrutiny comes understanding. And from that understanding comes support or opposition. And both are necessary. Both. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people. For I have complete confidence. So I would like you all to think about that. The response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. Think about not only how come everybody in office isn't making everybody in that office watch this, listen to this? How come every news channel isn't playing this for you to see? Think about that. Seriously, think important, wouldn't you think? Well, you spoke several times before about ideological subversion. That is a phrase that uh, I'm afraid some Americans don't fully understand. When uh, the Soviets use the phrase ideological subversion, what do they mean by it? Ideological subversion is, is the process which is legitimate, overt, and open. You, you can see it with your own eyes. All, all you have to do, all American mass media has to do, is to unplug their bananas from their ears, open up their eyes, and they can see it. There is no mystery. There is nothing to do with espionage. I know that espionage intelligence gathering looks more romantic. It sells more deodorants through the advertising, probably. That's why your Hollywood producers are so crazy about James Bond type of, of thrillers. But in reality, the main emphasis of the KGB is not in the area of intelligence at all. According to my uh, opinion and opinion of many defectors of my caliber, only about 15% of time, money and manpower is spent on espionage as such. The other 85% is a slow process which we call either ideological subversion or active measures, active мероприятия in the language of, of the KGB, or psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interest of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. It's a great brainwashing uh, process which goes very slow and it's divided in, in four basic stages. 
the first one being demoralization. It takes from 15 to 20 years to demoralize a nation. Why that many years? Because this is the minimum number of years which requires to uh, educate one generation of students in the country of, of, of your enemy, exposed to the ideology of the enemy. In other words, Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students without being challenged or counterbalanced by the basic values of Americanism, American patriotism. The result, the result you can see, most of the people who graduated in the 60s, dropouts or half-baked intellectuals, are now occupying the positions of power in the government, civil service, business, mass media, educational system. You are stuck with them. You cannot get rid of them. They are contaminated. They are programmed to think and react to certain stimuli in a certain pattern. You cannot change their mind. Even if you, if you expose them to authentic information, even if you prove that white is white and black is, uh, is black, you still cannot change the basic perception and the logic of behavior. In other words, these people, uh, uh, the process of demoralization is complete and irreversible. To get rid society of these people, you have you need another 20 or, or, or 15 years to educate a new generation of patriotically minded and, and, and uh, common, common sense people who would be acting in favor and in the interests of, of, the, uh, of the United States society. And yet these people have been programmed and, as you say, in place and yes. who are favorable to an opening with the Soviet concept. Mm -hmm. These are the very people who would be marked for extermination in this country? Most of them, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, simply because the psychological shock when, when they will see in future what the, what the beautiful society of equality and social justice means in practice, Obviously, they will revolt. They, 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 will, uh, they, they will be very unhappy, frustrated people. And the Marxist-Leninist regime does not tolerate these people. Uh, they, obviously, they will join the links of dissenters, dissidents. Uh, unlike in present United States, there will be no place for dissent in, in future Marxist-Leninist America. Uh, here you can, you can get... Uh, popular like uh, Daniel Ellsberg and filthy rich like Jane Fonda for being dissident, for criticizing your Pentagon. In future, these people will be simply squashed like cockroaches. Nobody is going to pay them nothing for their beautiful, noble ideas of equality. This they don't understand and uh, it will be greatest shock for them, of course. The demoralization process in the United States is basically completed already. Uh, for the last 25 years, Actually, it's overfulfilled because demoralization now reaches such areas where previously not even Comrade Andropov and, and all his experts would, would even dream of such a tremendous success. Most of it is done by Americans to Americans, thanks to lack of moral standards. As I mentioned... This was in 1987. You want to see how... Let me show you how this comes about. How you could see this with your own two eyes. Socialist. My job is to do something bizarre, uh, if you think about it. I have to talk to you today about, really, the, the history of socialism. Five years ago. Uh, where it's been and where it's going. 
Uh, and I'm reminded of a certain sad poem that Dylan Thomas used to recite as he traveled across the United States. He was going from one club to another, people interested in poetry, explaining, as he put it, the death of a movement inside poetry to a group of people who hadn't known it was born. And that was difficult for him. So I, I'm talking to you about socialism here in the United States, where we are now emerging, rather like a hibernating bear, from 50 years of repression in which socialism was neither taught, nor discussed, nor analyzed, nor appreciated, nor dealt with as if it were really there. It was swept under the rug if you were lucky, and it was demonized if you weren't, with demonization being the, the major form. Uh, and let me be real personal about it. Um, even though I come from humble backgrounds, for a lot of peculiar reasons, I went to the elite schools here in the United States. So my undergraduate time was spent at Harvard, and then I went to Stanford for my master's degree, and then I got my PhD at Yale. As you can see, I'm kind of a poster boy for elite education. And there I studied economics, history and economics. And in those three institutions, when I was going through them, I was never required to read one word of critical economic analysis, say by, I'll pick a minor author, Karl Marx, in order to understand, that was a joke by the way just there, um, in order to understand the capitalist system that my teachers were pretending they were analyzing for me. That's an amazing statement, and it tells you something about what we are emerging slowly now from. It would be a dangerous miscalculation not to understand that 50 years of that repression, and that's what we've had, 50 to 60 years of it, uh, leaves deep scars, deep absences, deep vacuums. And as I go along in this conversation, you will probably notice them but I don't want you to feel bad about it. It's not your fault. You live in a society that is only emerging from 50 years of taboo and you can't possibly know what no one had the courage to teach you because it wasn't a decision based on economics or knowledge or science or anything else. It was a decision based on fear. Professors fearful for their careers, teachers fearful for their jobs, and everybody else fearful that something bad would befall them if they pursued an interest in criticism. So we have a tradition in economics, of which I'm a part too, of studying economics while reading the articles and the books of people who celebrated it at every turn. The very words in our discipline, optimality. We study optimality. That's called the best of all possible worlds. We're optimal. We have equilibrium. Indeed, we have a lot of the things you search for in your own life, only you're probably smart enough to know you're not gonna find them. 
and you stop in the hope but let me give you the summary report the criticism is this that the interpretations of marx's critique of capitalism that focused on having the state come in and take over ownership and operation of enterprises having plannings what do your students think about free speech do they know their rights or what the limits are do they understand why free speech is important in their lives check out fire's free comic book it follows two high school students who through conversation imagine this as an advertisement in the united states of america in 2021 with teachers a counselor and a college student discover the value and limits of free expression while exploring ways to think for themselves we'll send you copies for your entire class at no cost and the accompanying lesson plan shows how to best teach these important concepts to your students fires comic book finding your voice order your free copies today check out fires free comic book finding your voice it follows what do your students think about free speech do they so socialism isn't it in which millions and millions of americans don't care that the man has the word socialist attached to him he can run for office Nine months ago, a very high official of the Democratic Party had a conversation with me. And in that conversation, she said, that's a hint, she said, <laughs> I can't go further than that, but some of you can take it further. She said, we're worried about Bernie Sanders. I said, really? Why? Well, we figure he's going to get one to three percent of the vote in the primaries. I said, and why is that worrisome? Because she, as she explained to me, there are a number of states where if he does that and the people who support him don't then vote for Mrs. Clinton, those states are close states and they could swing. One to three percent can make the difference. And the notion that Mr. Sanders would not be limited to one to three percent of the vote that he wouldn't be a fringe candidate, a position candidate, a protest candidate, but would be a serious threat, never dawned on them. So deeply in touch is the Democratic Party with the sentiment of the American people that they had no clue. So socialism is coming back. It's going to come back bigger and harder than most folks expect since most of the repression was the repression of something that didn't go away just because you pretended not to see it so it's coming back let me make it personal one more step i uh, retired as a professor at uh, umass in end of 2008 and now i'm much busier than i ever was as a professor i run around the country um talking about what's wrong with capitalism. I can't possibly fulfill all the invitations. I limit myself to three trips a month across the United States. I'm now going to list, list for you where I've spoken in the last four months. In each case, I'm only going to list audiences that were at least 300 people. Okay, here we go. 
Tampa, Florida, St. Petersburg, Florida, Houston, Texas, Ames, Iowa, Seattle and Bellingham, Washington, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Berkeley, Fresno, Boston, Syracuse and Ithaca. That's just to get you to get a feeling for the crisscrossing of the country that I now do. I'm always asked to talk about what's wrong with capitalism. This never happened before in my life. Something is fundamentally shifting in the United States. The reason I tell you all this is because you may not feel it quite here. That's nobody's fault. That's the way these things are. They develop unevenly. But you should be aware from someone like me that all of this is going on. I live in Manhattan. Once or twice a day, I am picked up by a limousine in front of my house. My neighbors think I am something very important. And I'm whisked off to a television studio somewhere where I give interviews. In that way, I can talk to millions of people. And the interviews are always about the same thing, which is tell us about what's wrong with capitalism. Most of the time, that's what they ask me to do. Okay. I've done interviews with Bill Maher on the, that late night comedy show that I'm sure some of you watch. He chose, I didn't, he chose. And what he talked to me about, I did the opening monologue, lasts about nine minutes when he interviews someone at the beginning of his program. He chose the topic Marxism. So he and I discussed Marxism for 10 million people or whatever it is that watches. The best interviews I've done in the last two or three years have been with Bill Moyers. I did three of those. I've also done Up With Chris Hayes. These are things that didn't used to happen in the United States because a person who's a critic of capitalism, which I am, a person who acknowledges with appreciation all that one learns from Karl Marx which I do. So be careful for some of you. Don't tell your parents that you came to this session because it might upset them. I hope I'm kidding. Okay, so... So, so did you hear that? Five years ago? All the places he traveled? Did you hear what I told you before? Ideological subversion, how it works? Did you hear a Democratic president who got assassinated before that tell you about infiltration and subversion? See, all these things are at your fingertips. But see, today, today we teach you think too much. Today we teach why do you analyze everything? Today we teach that's conspiracy. See, we don't teach look for yourself. We listen to what two-minute segments on the news tells you and you believe it to be truth without even looking for yourself, without even taking a chance, taking a moment to look for yourself. And this is how this happens. So I suggest you start looking. If you plan on having a free future.
in a free society like John F. Kennedy was trying to warn us about before they took him out. This danger can be stated in the form of a simple equation, which I think might be the defining equation of life in the 21st century. B times C times D equals R, which means biological knowledge multiplied by computing power multiplied by data equals the ability to hack humans. Ah. If you know enough biology and you have enough computing power and data, you can hack my body and my brain and my life and you can understand me better than I understand myself. You can know my personality type, my political views, my sexual preferences, my mental weaknesses, my deepest fears and hopes. You know more about me than I know about myself. And you can do that not just to me, but to everyone. A system that understands us better than we understand ourselves can predict our feelings and decisions, can manipulate our feelings and decisions, and can ultimately make decisions for us. Now, in the past, many tyrants and governments wanted to do it, but nobody understood biology well enough, and nobody had enough computing power and data to hack millions of people. Neither the Gestapo nor the KGB could do it. But soon, at least some corporations and governments will be able to systematically hack all the people. We humans should get used to the idea that we are no longer mysterious souls. We are now hackable animals. I literally want to fucking be violent with these people. So if you haven't had your mind blown in a while, I am about to blow it up. Follow me. So BlackRock and Vanguard own everything. And I mean everything. So for example, you can find all of this on Yahoo Finance. Go there, type in a company, look at the ownership breakdown. This is Pepsi. Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street. This is Coca-Cola. These are the food brands they own. I'm telling you, just go to Yahoo Finance and look it up. This is no bullshit. They own Twitter, they own Facebook, they own Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google and YouTube. They own Apple, they own Microsoft. They are enormous investors in Android. So Apple and Android, both owned by them. They own IBM. They own Intel. They own all the software companies and computer companies that you would look at social media on, which they own the social media companies. They own the travel booking companies. They own the airplane companies. They own Shell. They own BP. They own Exxon. They own the mining companies that we use. And they own the metals. They own the agricultural industry and the machines used to harvest that agriculture. They own Big Pharma. They own the banks, so they hold your money. They also own Visa. They own MasterCard. They own practically everything. They work closely with the federal government, giving them loans and grants. They own the media you watch, CBS, NBC, CNN, HBO, TNT, Stars. And feel free to fact check me. Go to Yahoo Finance, type in these companies, and look at the top four or five stockholders. You will find Vanguard, and BlackRock, and sometimes Berkshire Hathaway, 
at the top every time. The more companies you type in, the more this is going to freak you out. So who invests in Vanguard and BlackRock and who does Vanguard and BlackRock invest their money into? The Clintons, the Bushes, the Obamas, Schiff, Pelosi, Schumer, McConnell. And so when you go to look up who owns Vanguard, it's private. It's where it gets tricky because these people like to keep a low profile. The Orsini family, the Bush Foundation and the Bush family, and both of them are Skull and Bones alum from Yale if you want to go like hopping down that rabbit hole. That's a whole nother story. The Royal Family, some of the other names I'm sure you've heard of are the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the Vanderbilt family, and if you look closely, who is that? Anderson Cooper, Mr. CNN. These two companies, along with State Street and Berkshire Hathaway, make roughly 86% of the money in the world. Go look it up. It is all there if you're willing to take the time to research it. And maybe next time when CNN is pushing a Pfizer vaccine, people are like, oh, I don't know if I want to take that. And then Facebook and Twitter and Instagram are fact-checking that and censoring people and doctors that speak out against it. Think twice and then think one more time. These people do not care about you or I. They care about themselves. Now for a little bit of a Rockefeller history. What you got to know about the medical industry. There's many things that the Rockefellers done that they don't teach us that in school. They don't teach us it on the news. These are the things you gotta look outside the box for. The box of the institutions and society. You have to read. You have to think for yourself. Because that's the last thing. The government or the powers that run the government want you to be able to do. Around the same time that John D. Rockefeller seized U.S. media, he also hijacked U.S. medicine. When it was discovered that drugs could be produced from petroleum, America's top oil mogul ordered his army of propagandists to invert reality accordingly. Medicines used for thousands of years were suddenly classified as alternative, while the new, petroleum-based, highly addictive, and patentable drugs were declared the gold standard. After buying the German pharmaceutical company that manufactured chemicals of war for Adolf Hitler, Rockefeller leveraged his political influence by pressing Congress to declare natural healing modalities unscientific quackery. Rockefeller then took control of the American Medical Association and began offering massive grants to top medical schools under the mandate that only his approved curriculum be taught. Any mention of the healing powers of herbs, plants, and diet was erased from most medical textbooks. Doctors and professors who objected to Rockefeller's plan were crucified by the media removed from the AMA and stripped of their license to teach and practice medicine. Those who dared to speak out were arrested and jailed. When evidence began to emerge that petroleum-based medicines were causing cancer, Mr. Rockefeller founded the American Cancer Society through which he suppressed that information. 
John D. Rockefeller is duly credited as the founder of the pharmaceutical industry and the reason that medical error is currently the third leading cause of death in America. This is not an indictment against doctors. More than anyone, they are under the stranglehold of the single largest lobbying power in Washington. Every year, the pharmaceutical industry spends at least twice the amount as big oil to influence laws, policies, and public perception. Thanks to Mr. Rockefeller, the architect of American monopolies, no industry has more power over our lives than Big Pharma. Now here's a little mind-blowing speech by Robert Welch in 1958. Let me see. Yeah, 1958. So tell me what you think. That plan, of course, is to induce the gradual surrender of American sovereignty, piece by piece and step by step, to various international organizations of which the United Nations is the outstanding but far from the only example. Now here are the themes for the United States. One, greatly expanded government spending for every conceivable means of getting rid of ever larger sums of American money as wastefully as possible. Two, higher and then much higher taxes. Three, an increasingly unbalanced budget, despite the higher taxes. Four, wild inflation of our currency. Five, government controls of prices, wages, and materials, supposedly to combat inflation. Six, greatly increased socialistic controls over every operation of our economy, and every activity of our daily lives. This is to be accompanied naturally and automatically by a correspondingly huge increase in the size of our bureaucracy and in both the cost and reach of our domestic government. Seven, far more centralization of power in Washington and the practical elimination of our state lines. There is a many-faceted drive at work to have our state lines eventually mean no more within the nation than our county lines do now within the states. Eight, the steady advance of federal aid to and control over our educational system, leading to complete federalization of our public education. Nine, a constant hammering into the American consciousness of the horror of modern warfare the beauties and the absolute necessity of peace. Peace always on communist terms, of course. And ten, the consequent willingness of the American people to allow the steps of appeasement by our government, which amount to a piecemeal surrender of the rest of the free world, So, till we meet again, this is TJ, you have listened to TJ Sweetwater's Truth, podcast where we tell the truth, even if it hurts. <laughs>